Welcome to Teaching That Counts, a podcast dedicated to the teaching and learning of mathematics. We discuss a variety of topics from building thinking classrooms to creating a more equitable math class. I hope that the conversations that I have with my guests help inspire you in your own classroom, school, or district, or if you're a parent like me, with your child's mathematics journey. You can find me via my website, teachingthatcountspodcast.com, or on socials at Teach. Thank you again for joining me, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, welcome everybody to the latest episode of Teaching That Counts. I cannot wait to have you listen to this episode. I get to talk to one of my former principals, and we work together. Uh, Dr. Michael D'Souza is the founder of the Rhoda Leadership Consulting Firm, and we worked together about 10 years ago. He was my principal when I worked at a charter school in the Bay Area called Leadership Public School. What a wonderful experience I had, one of the most pivotal experiences in my career, really getting me into reflection and how to be a more equitable teacher. And so my my journey with, with equity, I mean, it started a long time ago, uh, probably, I would even say probably my own experience in school is where I started in that, but... Uh, being in in the Bay Area, being in the charter school really just taught me a lot about how I can look and reflect within myself, look at best practices, uh, do some research, and and really look at how to build structures in my own classroom, in my own math classroom, to have an equitable approach. So we talk today, we talk a, li- a lot about equity because that's what Mike does. Mike does a lot of work on equity, a lot of work on building culture with the schools, with the structures, and with the communities. And I'm just totally fascinated by a lot of the work and the consulting that he's been doing the last few years. We talk about belonging and creating that sense of belonging in students, in their school, in the classroom, and how we can do that. And if those of you that are going to the NCTM conference in Seattle, the regional conference, are one of our, our big themes is belonging. And I know we've talked about how to bring a sense of belonging in our students. So we really focus on, on that in, in the end of this, this podcast. Lastly, we talk about bringing indigenous cultures and cultures that are non-Eurocentric into the teaching of mathematics. Mathematics... Uh, historically, teaching mathematics is a transactional has been a transactional approach, and on top of that, it's really Eurocentric. And so, how do we bring other cultures into that? Here in California, we have a, we have an ethnic studies requirement in high school now, which has been a long time coming. But it's it's important for students to see themselves and see their histories in the subjects that they do, and and that. Yes, can happen in ELA. It can happen in in uh, social studies, in science, and and in a standalone ethnic studies class. But something that we don't consider a lot is how does that manifest itself in our math classes? So we talk a little bit about how 
we would like to see that happen in mathematics and how we can bring some of those indigenous cultures into our math classes. So I hope you enjoy this. Uh, I enjoyed just spending some time and catching up with with Mike. It's been a long time since we talked. So uh, here we go, the next episode of Teaching That Counts. Well, welcome to, so this is uh, my podcast, Teaching That Counts. And I'm so excited to talk to you again. And, uh, or I say again, because we work together and it's been a, it's been a long time. It's, it, yeah. How long has it been? Did you, did you do the math already? Yeah, it's been, been 10 years. Okay. Because uh, I've been here in the Central Valley for 10 years. Nice. And I know that the last year I was at LPS, Leadership Public School, uh, you were, you were my principal there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was good times. This so, is all the time. Yeah, and it's pretty awesome keeping it up with you and what you've been doing and your your kiddos. Uh, gosh, I, I remember, I mean, how old is your oldest now? She's going to freshman year next year, so she's 13. Wow. Yeah, I remember they were just, she was so small, so little. Yeah. And my, my son is a freshman this year. So I don't know if you remember, he was a, our last year that he was a little guy too. Yeah. Um, and it's been pretty cool to see to see your family. And I know once we get talking about some of this stuff, it, it's, yeah. you know, the family relationship is really big in what you do. And yeah. uh, it's really important to me as well. And so it's just been really nice to see uh, the connection that you have with your family, your family, you know, the kiddos growing up and, yeah. and just everything you've done in the last 10 years. It's been pretty cool. Yeah, no, it's been, I feel blessed to have so many amazing opportunities to do work that I love um, in a way that lets me take care of my family. Right. Uh, yeah. So uh, so let's talk about what you've been doing over the last 10 years. So, you know, um, you know what I've done? We <laughs> I you know, the time that I spent at Leadership Public School was was amazing. I loved the time at, you know, I, I feel like you know, I hear these things about charter schools and they get a bad rap. And I, I it's hard for me to have the view of the of the bad charter school because the experience that i had at lps and the ones that i know that that the connections that we've had with um uh, aspire um some of the other ones that were in our area yeah uh, were just amazing transformative places for kids right yeah and so for me i always have had such a great experience yeah with those years that i was there and that last year i was going to you know talk about you for a little bit um my last year uh, i i always had some um nervousness about change in leadership right and so when you came on board i was a little nervous because it was a new person but man your ability to be a leader for us that year was just it was an amazing and phenomenal the way you put caring and empathy and equity in the forefront and then gave gave the teachers the space to really be creative in in what they were doing was really that year. That year, mate, was a big difference maker for my career because I was able to, I, I think you remember this, uh, I started the flip classroom that year and the kids were willing to go, go with that. And since then, I've been doing a lot of like my own research on what has been working. I do a lot of reading, uh, a lot of reading of texts and I've worked with a lot of teachers over the last five years on really establishing such a great culture in their classroom um, with engagement. And and I think that year that I spent with you allowed me to really break open into my own teaching and, and career and reflecting. So that was just a great, 
a great experience. So I, I just wanted to thank you for that that year. That was and that was ten years ago. We've done yeah. a lot since then. And yeah. so, uh, so like, catch me up. You've got I see the little back rota there, and so you can talk yeah. about that um, and what you do for for communities and schools right now. Yeah, I don't usually like to use backgrounds because it makes you like kind of like the haze. But I'm in my yeah. daughter's room, so it's slightly distracting. My mother-in-law is staying in our house, so my normal office is not available. But I'm happy to be here and looking at the the oak trees in the back of my my house in Oakland. The the community we built at Leadership Public Schools, the community of teachers and students, and uh, was very very special and unique, and it, it it continues to be an anchor for what I think is possible in schools around school culture, around how school culture is the foundation for all instructional quality. And so I think a lot of what I learned there and tried to practice was this equal balance between the the social cultural of school, like the culture, like what does school yeah. feel like, and, and the actual technical practices of instruction. And I think we were able to do things with like real clear intention and and just like grabbing both those poles and like understanding that that's what like makes schools great is if they're working in in, in parallel. And I think even if you think about our staff back then, if you look at either the leadership or even the teaching staff, we had people who are like really relational, right? It's like Omar Wandera. Yeah. No, there's n- few people in the world can like have kids love and revere and fear in equal like intensity, right? And how right. that his ability to do that. And then like, then we had like the, like you and Mike McCaffrey, Fauteur, Rose Zapata, like these just like, just like amazing tacticians. Like they were very technically sound when it comes to instruction, like planning, right? Like instructional, like from just the nitty gritty of being a baller teacher, they had that. So we had this mixture of just people who are weaving around the social, cultural and the instructional with such clarity. And I think it was why we were that one of the highest performing schools in, in the, in the, in the state. And in some ways, I mean, there was, there were years where we were having like over a hundred visitors. Do you remember that? Well, like, yeah, I do. I remember like, that. There were, I mean, we had Brazilians come like we yeah. had, I mean, it was funny. I don't know if you know the Brazilians came. I joked with them like, Hey, if y'all ever need me to come, like help y'all out, I'll, I'll be there. And then they call me up and I'm like flying to Brazil, telling them about our school. Like it was a super special place. And obviously the young people were amazing. And but I believe that our, our young people, the young people there weren't different than any other young people, right? It was just creating yeah. conditions for them to be to be great. Um, yeah, I think the other strong memory I have more time, my first year in that class uh, was was obviously special to me because it, it, like, it's very memorable because it was my first year as a principal. Yeah, I remember Serene as a ninth grader going to the retreat because we did that retreat where we bring yeah. all the graders before they come to campus, which is a very transformational experience for a lot of these young people. And I just asked the the group and Serene said, uh, responded. My question was like, how does this feel different? Does this feel different already? And like Serene stood up in front of all these like ninth graders she didn't know yet. And she started crying and she's like, this is the first time in my life, like where I've been to school where people think that we can be great. I like, was just like in the first, like it was the first day. It was like only a few hours with us together. It was like, the transformational impact of creating a school culture that is so like salient so like you can feel it the kids immediately feel like a gestalt and like the way that they can just show up to school and be seen as intelligent powerful capable like like respectful like all the things that we did so um so so much positive learning and I also look back on the time like oh man now, now what I, I know even more now and like I and there's things I wish I would have done different and so so some context, what I've done. So when Trump was elected, I made that my decision to like, I want to like now have a more systemic impact beyond my school and really make sure that the way that schools 
systems as a whole were thinking about schooling equity. So I don't know if you know, but like even after that, we were moving, we were starting to do grad grading differently, right? We we're trying to move move towards right. master grading, which I know you've yeah. been engaged in. We were moving towards changing our admission policies, so we were giving priorities to students who had um, scored below basic on the state test or lived in the lowest income neighborhoods. Like we were doing like real true equity work around like how do we make sure that our school serves the students who have been furthest from opportunity. And then right. how do we also make sure that our practice inside are not continue to harm kids that came to us because they were underprepared when they got to us. But I was like, but these things need to be happening on systems, right? Across us. Yeah. Whole city. So I took a position at an organization called educate 78, which was primarily focused on the 78 square miles of Oakland. And I was working with central office staff around thinking about how to restructure the school, the, the whole school system around like what schools should grow, which schools might we merge, what schools should we consider closing and how do we engage with the community around that conversation about why schools need to be restructured. So I did that work. I, I coached uh, six or seven different principals who were either in the process of redesigning their school or merging their school or building a new school um, and had amazing opportunities to work with some great leaders. Probably my my favorite and most transformative experience was working with the Homies Empowerment uh, Organization, which which during COVID was essentially just like a it was just doing powerful work feeding families. Like they just had a, oh. they called it the Freedom Store, just like making sure people were fed. Um, but they had been designing a school for a long time. Dr. Cesar Cruz was designing a school, and they just opened their school in the fall. Um, they eventually decided to make it a, a an independent school. So it's a private school, but it's a free school. There's no tuition. Oh, okay. Um, so I got to work with them. That was super powerful. I got to work, uh, with the OUSD central office around restructuring. And that was more learning about what not to do than what to do. Um, (laughs) so I got to do that work, but in my time there, my last year at Edgy 78, I was like on loan to a parent organization called the Oakland Reach. And the Oakland Reach had been just super powerful organization in Oakland where they were, there was a group of like four black moms who were like, we got to do something about our child's education. Like, like grandmas who like they were served poorly. Now their grandchildren are being served poorly. They just wanted to to act to advocate for improving uh, quality of schools. And so when I connected with them, they had done a survey with families over like 400 families. Like, what's the one thing that's keeping you up at night around your child's education? And 80 percent of the families said reading. And so that was the same summer where Emily Hanford's podcast around uh, literacy across the country and yeah. the science of reading, like. The NAACP locally was talking about reading. Um, the district re- re- wanted to be involved. And so I led, a, uh, I was the chief of staff for a campaign that we called the Literacy for All campaign. And the vision was we'd start with like addressing early education, uh, like early ed, like TK through three literacy. But then we eventually moved to all grades. And we'd also move towards like making sure adults learn how to read. But we started at the at the younger grades and Super powerful campaign. We had like 30 organizations across the city, the mayor's office, charter schools, nonprofits, the district. Um, and people are like, hey, we got to let's get on the same page around what's our policy and what's our plan for addressing uh, literacy and, and moving towards a more systematic and structured approach to literacy. So that was super fun because we not only do we have like the grass tops, like people in leadership positions, but we also ran workshops. We had five workshops that year around families where they were actually learning how children learn how to read. Oh, that's great. Uh, they were engaging with like the, the the standards and the assessments. They were learning about the neurology of reading. Like it was super powerful. So when it was time to go to the board and say, we need you to like adopt a, a curriculum that's aligned to um, to the research around how early literacy is developed. It was it was the first time in a long time. Like it was a unanimous vote. Like everyone said yes. No one was going to stand up to because we had like 200 moms, like black and brown moms, some dads, right? Show up to the board meeting all in their yellow shirts. And it was a super powerful moment. And that was led by families. 
Unfortunately, a month later, when the day that we're supposed to have our summit, where we're bringing families to sit with teachers and principals, right? To like, okay, now we got the policy. How are we going to move this forward? The day the summit was supposed to happen was the day that schools were closed for COVID. Oh, wow. So we didn't get to have the summit, obviously. And the Oakland Reach went straight into just like taking care of families, fundraising and getting families money just to pay for the rent or to pay for food and it was an amazing organization and what they were doing just to support families. But a month later, Keisha's like, Michael, like, I think we, Keisha's the founder of the Open Reach. She said, Michael, I think we just got teaching babies how to read. So we designed, uh, out of the blue, I just, we, we created our own summer school, a, oh, virtual, wow. cool. a virtual summer school um, that involved primarily literacy since we were focused on literacy, but we also started slowly uh, engaging with other local organizations around complementary education programs, whether it would be like, we had martial arts, we had science, we had all these amazing programs. So, and it was all free of charge to families. So they were getting, we call it like the porterhouse steak. Like they were getting <laughs> really, really good, high quality online learning. Um, so it was also like a, it was interesting because like the quality of the daytime learning with their schools was pretty ineffective. Right. So what we called that the citywide hub um, and the literacy liberation center, we built that for COVID and it lasted for a few years. Like we were running it um, all through COVID, all through uh, shelter in place. And it just blew up. Like it went from like, we were on CNN, ABC news, like uh, Mackenzie Scott gave us $3 million. Like we went from like wow. a million dollar organization to like a $5 million organization in just the course of like a year and a half, two years. Yeah. Uh, and just having really profound impact on, on families here in Oakland. And, and I learned tons. And so when I look at that experience and I think about what what I didn't do as a principal is I didn't really build with families when I was a principal. Mm. Um, I was I was I was serving families. I was like doing four families or doing two families. And I think that experience shifted my mindset around what would school what could schools be if we if we did school with families? Yeah. If we were like partner shoulder to shoulder and thinking about what what we want to do. Right. Uh, and it was never like I, I had super positive relations with families. I mean, families really trusted me, like being multilingual, being a son of immigrants. Like there was just like a lot of trust, but it was very deferential, right? It was like, right. see my, like whatever you say, like, like whatever you say we do, like, yes. Like, and that was, it's helpful in some ways, but also like I should have paused to ask, like, how do you want to be involved or what's your hopes? Like, what are your dreams and how do those dreams and hopes and goals like infuse into what we do in school? And I think there was moments where we did some cool, cool things with families, but um, ultimately I think that's my biggest takeaway is I think schools can be really different places if, if we think about doing school with community and not to community. And so, yeah, yeah after that experience with Oak and Reach, which is super powerful, like my third year I had, uh, we had our third baby and uh, we had, I had been hustling for so, so long. It was really rapid growth of, of things that I decided to go independently. And that's when I built uh, my own consulting practice, which has pretty much a, primarily focused on family leadership and family engagement um, because of my, my, everything I learned at the Oakland Reach. Um, but I also do tons of other like instructional PDs. I've led instruction uh, focused PDs, a lot around belonging and the relationship between belonging and academic achievement. Remember I was talking those, those tensions, yeah. that dichotomy, uh -huh. there's no, there's no false, it's not a dichotomy that they're really connected. Um, yeah. And it's been, it's been an amazing year. I've had 24 clients. I've traveled around the country, um, leading presentations and led fellowships for 50 families in South city. Um, yeah, I just had a great, a great year of doing work that I really love and, 
still think that there's there's huge opportunities for us to think about families and family engagement. So that's what, what I'm spending most of my time doing. Yeah, that is so awesome, man. You mentioned so many things that I want to come back to. Cool. <laughs> so many things in that that little bit that I, that I'd like to come back to. So just the kind of the the most recent thing that you said um, about belonging and and how you really focus on that belonging piece. I had the opportunity this year, a wonderful opportunity to be on the planning committee for the regional National Council of Teachers of Mathematics conference coming up in Seattle in February. Right. So I was. I've been helping with the planning. And when we were first meeting and thinking about our um, our theme, right, our, our strands, we really wanted to have it all surrounded with a sense of belonging. When we were talking about this, we were thinking, how do teachers have a sense of belonging when they teach mathematics? So most of the people that listen to, to this podcast, they're either math teachers, they're math coaches. I do have a lot of administrators and some board members that listen to this podcast and all over the place. Um, I've got kind of a following in Canada, so that's kind of neat. Um, but but all of the, you know, we really talk about math a lot. And so uh, one thing we're talking about with belonging is we're, we're for the NCTM conference is how do we have a sense of belonging as math teachers? Because not not all the teachers are math experts, right? We've got um, teachers K, K-6 that come and have their own experience with mathematics. Um, but how do we also have a, how do we give kids a sense of belonging? Because we know that when, when students feel they belong, their confidence increases, their feeling that they can be mathematicians increases. And, and that's what we want for our kids. But I think that was something that you said that was interesting is, we hadn't thought about the sense of belonging for the community and the sense of belonging for parents. Um, you know, we, we've, over the last years, we've changed our verbiage from stakeholders to educational partners. And there's some, some reasons behind that that have more to do with, with what I'm going to talk about right now. But the idea that um, somebody has a stake in the game is different than the idea of somebody being a partner in education. And mm-hmm. I like the the idea that if we, you know, just what you said about working with our communities and not just at or for our communities, mm-hmm. um, we can increase our level of education for our kiddos, right? Yeah. And that sense of belonging. So, so I, I my question here with you with is just like um, I know you work with a lot of uh, leaders and and looking at really school structure, you know how can that that lens on equity and the leaders that are listening to this podcast how can they support the goal of belonging for students in mathematics in school uh, and teachers and our community like what can we be doing to help that? Yeah, I'm gonna try to keep. This big, big stuff. I'm gonna try to keep it to three essential things. Um, and I'll go back to leadership as an example, like our school, the experience that we had there. There was a real clear sense <clears throat> of what it meant to be part of our school. Like when you said what it meant to be a royal, while some kids would like would, would joke around there like facetiously, but, but it still was like actually true. Like there was a bit of an expectation of what does it mean to teach here? What does it mean to be a student here? What does it mean to be part of this community? And I would say all schools to create a sense of belonging and a belonging that actually drives achievement that drives learning. You have to have that sense of group identity. 
for all people. They're like, families know what it means, right? And if you don't already have that, right? If there isn't, isn't a living ethos around what it means to be part of the school, right? If it's just like the, I often use analogy like tap water, like school shouldn't be tap water. It shouldn't just be like this thing that way I'm going to school, school, school. What do you mean? What What's my school about? It should be like, no, we've like designed intentionally with community, like what it means to be part of this place. And so what that means for the way I act, what that means for my practices, what it means for our policies, for our relationships. So I think the root of all belonging at a school is, is creating a common understanding of what it means to rock with each other. Yeah. Right. And, it, and not in a way where like, if you don't fit this mold, then you're like, you don't belong. It's more, but like, how do we, how do we come to agreement that we all say like, this is what it means. Right. And so I don't, I, I'm not saying this is, everyone has to have the same one, but students, family, staff should all build what I call like a collectively held mission, vision values that we can come back to whenever things get hard. Right. So when a kid doesn't feel belonging or when a kid isn't performing, we come back to like, what did, what, what is it, what did we say to each other about what it means to be part of this community? So why school culture is at the root of everything is that right because there mm -hmm. things will go bad something will go wrong like a teacher may not be performing the way we want them to perform or a student might not be showing up the way we need them to show up or family might be coming in and they're upset with something right and then we got to come back to well, what does it mean Let, let's start from the, our common understanding of what it means to be part of the school and then we can move forward together but if it's just the tap water right if there's no actual like personal relationship to like what what does it mean to be here what are our agreements then it you move into the transactional way of being with each other. So a lot of my conversations with leaders is how do we move from a purely transactional or technocratic way of being with each other into a more transformational way of being, which is means that we recognize that every experience, every opportunity is an opportunity to like, to change, to grow for me to be better in my interaction with you, for you to be better because of the interaction we have. But every moment is, is an opportunity of connectedness of relationships of like believing that we could create a different world together right? Like that belief that we can create yeah. a better world together is what allows us to, to create belonging when things are hard, right? But if you're just in the transactional, well, the, the rule book says you didn't come to school four times. So you like, here's your consequence or uh, the, the teacher contract says X, Y, and Z. So I'm going to like the transactional part of schooling and that way, of, and really our society, right? That like, you give me X, I give you Y, like this, that, that way of being will not get us to a place where we like really radically dream about what belonging means and what it means to be part of a school that's transformational. So that's my first thing. Yeah. School yeah. culture. Like you don't I got do. if you don't got a tight school culture, if you don't have a if you're not building it, if you're not reflecting on it, right? Remember how we used to do the day of reflection every year? Yeah. That's a really powerful like very in the moment it's like feels like kind of like tactical, but it's like, no, it's actually very transformational because we were like at the end, we're like, what do we do? How do we do? Like, what do we want to do better? Like, let's set the goals for next year, right? Like we're in right. this constant dialogue around like we want to be better than we are today, that we can be better than we are today. Like like that, that kind of practice of, of rooting in a belief that we, we, that we are doing something important and we can do it together and there's common uh, principles around it. So that's one. Any questions yeah. about the first one? Well, I just <laughs> want to say in, in a micro level, like if a, if a teacher is in teaching in their classroom, right. And I'm specifically talking to a lot of the, the people that out there that have listened on, on um, Matt in the math classroom, you know, yeah. in a micro level, we, um, make that sense of community in there. Um, you know, I think historically you mentioned this with the parents saying, well, you know, this didn't serve me right. Like this didn't serve me right. And my kids are getting the same thing. And we've seen scores and scores. We've seen um, that the way that we've taught mathematics historically has not worked for like 80% of kids. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. it's not working for 80%. And the way that we're 
the way that the way that we've historically taught was very transactional. I'm teacher, you listen to me, now you do it. And yeah. now this is like this is the way it works. Absolutely. And it's not transformate uh, um it's transformational. Is that the transformational change transactional yeah. stay the same right and so <laughs> i just think that relationship you know when yeah. we're talking about having students talk to one another we were, we're more yeah. of a facilitator and facilitating yeah. that learning um <clears throat> that is not a transactional relationship that is a wearing it together relationship yeah absolutely and something that you said made me think of um one that that if you're a teacher in a classroom and you're like I don't I I can't run a whole school wide movement for school culture you can yeah. do a you can do a classroom based like there are oases of like you create like what does it mean to be part of this classroom right but I think that so now this is moving into the second element which which yeah. when I think about belonging which is around culture by itself is not enough yeah you actually need the structures and systems that show kids that that you care about whether or not they're learning, right? And so the second element that I talk about in elite sessions around is some of the strategies that you used and some of the great math teachers that we, we, we've collaborated with use is like using data to show that I know what you know and I'm gonna do something about it or we are gonna do something about it together when you don't know. Like what's yeah. more brain-breaking or heartbreaking to a kid to, 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 to come to a classroom and feel like you're inadequate or you might not be able to do well and then to leave being confirmed that you don't know Right. And you do that over and over and over 180 days for 12 years of your life. You go right. Imagine going in somewhere, being reminded that you're inadequate and then leaving on a daily basis, feeling inadequate. Like yeah. no wonder kids are tired of school. Right. No wonder <laughs> kids don't want to be there. Right. So if our systems don't have some way to one on one conferencing, small group instruction. Right. Personalized learning, adaptive technology. Right collaborative learning, dialogue, like things that make kids, one, feel adequate, that they are learning, and then have proof that data shows them that they're growing, right? A transactional lecture-based classroom where you sit, I tell, I talk to you, we'll wait two weeks, three weeks to take the test, and you find out whether or not you learned or not, right? Even though the whole time in your head, you're like, I, this is not feeling right, I don't understand, right? right. Like we have to have these micro cycles of attempt, risk, talk, try, growth, right? The same way that yeah. like like athletes, right? You wouldn't wait. If a guy wasn't making shots, you wouldn't wait two weeks to like tell him how to like bring your elbow in, right? And make sure your feet are falling through. You would tell them in the moment, elbow in, hand forward, use your wrist, right? You right. would do that correct, corrective coaching along the way. And so our school system hasn't, hasn't been part of that way of thinking. It's been the lecture-based top-down sit and get. And then if you get it, great, right? I mean, so there's a lot of schools that just blame the kids. Like, if they didn't get it, it's on them, right? Right. Yeah. And so they're not using systems to think about small iterations of learning, formative assessment, small group, one-on-one, like all the different modalities where you can actually humanize and, and use data, not as, as a tool for deficits, right? But data as a tool to like celebrate growth and learning. And and um, and so I think that's the other thing is culture, uh, uh, saying this is what we believe in and this is what we rock. And then you don't have the systems to do it. Like, cause you, that happens in school. Like we're, we're about equity and we're about all these things. And like, we want to have a strong school culture. Then you go into a classroom and there it is. Like kids aren't talking, they're not getting feedback. They're not supporting each other. There's no discourse. Right. Right. Yeah. There's, there's just grading, right. The grading it's, it's is inequitable. Yeah. It's just, yeah. But that was the second thing. And now I have to remember what my third thing. Oh, third thing. Uh, should I go to the third thing now? That's good. Cool. Yep. Yeah. yeah. The third thing is. I've been so I got my dissertation since we last talked too. I, uh -huh. I finished my, my doctorate and I have been exploring 
this idea of radical futuring and rooting a vision for the future that's that's based upon indigenous cultures, mm. uh, both Native American cultures, but also African, like all continents have indigenous culture. And I think when we think about mathematics in most American schools, it's heavily rooted in European yeah. history, right? I mean, all the theorems are named after Europeans, right? Like the the way it's written and described, like, and and I'm I'm not necessarily like let's blow up all math and like start from scratch and just use Mayan characters, right? Like that's not what I'm saying, but at the same time, like, gosh, our math is really Eurocentric, right? Yeah. If you're a black student, an uh, indigenous student, a Latino student, you might think that you're now learning this language of your the Europeans, maybe not on the top of your mind, but like subconsciously, there's a reason why a lot of communities don't feel welcomed in math because it is, was not the math that we use is not, was not built from the, from other cultures. Right. And so I think, I think math teachers have to have the question of how do, does math become a place where we problematize the epistemology, right. Or problematize mm -hmm. the idea of what is math because there's, there was math on every continent, right. People were doing math for thousands of years right the idea that like the the renaissance and european thinkers and or even like the greek thinkers were the only mathematicians is just wholly inaccurate no right? uh, egyptians the mayan exactly. i mean i remember in the movie um stand and deliver he you know jaime escalante says the yes. mayans were the first to have the concept of zero he's a mayan yeah. he's all mathematics is in your blood <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I think that we should be asking the questions about how do we make math uh, how do we remind ourselves that math was not owned by Europeans? How do we yeah. remind ourselves that math is has and has always been part of all of our ancestries? And that the idea that math is devoid of social and cultural context is is harmful. And mm -hmm. and I have also re often reflected, like I studied, I don't know if you know this, but I studied molecular and cellular biology in college. That was my major. Oh, wow. Surprising, <laughs> right? Whatever yeah, I told you, right. like, that's not what they got. I would guess. But yeah, I, I studied uh, MCB. They call it MCB at Cal. And I think of all the science and math classes I took, right? A lot of them. Um, yeah. Not once did they ever ask me why I was doing this, why it mattered, what implications it has for the world, what opinions do I have about anything? Like yeah. not once. And this is like a premier science university, right? So yeah. imagine being able to go to the university, study for four years and had never been asked why this matters. It tells you like, that's why we have the world we have is because why do we create atom bombs? Like, why do, why do we have like technology that's destroying our earth? Because like, no one was asking them, like, why does this matter? So math is deeply social, socially, it's social, it's cultural, it's political. And I think we should, we should find ways for math to, to welcome in those conversations about, and, and once again, it's not easy, right? Because you can't spend half your time talking about social, cultural uh, issues in mathematics, and then still make sure that they're ready to take the SAT or that they're ready for college level math. So uh, a phrase I've often said, and I keep on back to is the challenge of teaching and learning in schools is preparing students for the world that exists while preparing them to create the world that they deserve. Right. Yeah. And I think math teachers have an opportunity to think about like in the future of, of math, like how, how are we bringing in different epistemologies, different like cultures, different ways of talking and speaking about math um, that allow students to see themselves and each other in ways that are as mathematicians in ways that like our current curriculum really fails in doing. Right. And so yeah. a lot of that stuff happens in English classrooms or history classrooms where they're let's use primary resources for history that are from different people, or let's make sure we're reading authors that are black and brown in our schools. But like, I don't hear very many people in math saying like, how are we bringing in Mayan mathematics? How are we bringing in 
Southeast Asian mathematics, right? How are we bringing in Aborigine mathematics? Like there's not, I don't hear that as much. Um, and I think there's opportunities for us to do that, that can allow kids to see themselves. And even just like basics, like all your mom and dads and everyone's doing math in some way at home, um, mm -hmm. whether they like to think of themselves as doing math, like we're all doing geometry and we're, we're seeing patterns, like we're estimating there, there's, there's math all around us all the time. And so we, we should remind our students that they're all mathematicians already. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, even if I think some of the those um, methods that we look at in numeracy and methods that students are doing with area models, those have roots back to Mayan and Aztec mathematics. And um, talking about that, they that's where we're coming from. It's not a bad I like it's not bad for the kids to know and see themselves and their histories in the mathematics that we do. Um, yeah, so yeah, I love that. And this stuff is hard because depending on who you are as a teacher, if you've been doing grading work, then you know, like people have deeply held like relationships yeah. with schooling, right? And so yeah. like with grading, there's like, that's how I got to where I am. Like grades are like, they work the way they are, right? Like I think right. they, they'll, we'll have teachers that have the same relationship to math, right? Yeah. Like this is how you do math. This is what math is. This is like, that's why, this is why I love math. Like whatever it is, like they're going to have to deconstruct their own relationship to math in some ways so that they can be more open-minded to the idea that um, math can be more than just a Eurocentric. Uh, well, and, and I think that that comes from, we've talked about, um, you know, we've heard this a lot. That comes from some internal biases, right? Like, like I'm not saying internal biases are bad, but they, they exist. <laughs> and when we've done something our whole lives in, in an experiential, that's the experience that we had that's caused that internal bias. And mathematics is a, is affected by internal biases, the way we teach it. Um, and to be able to understand that those mathematical biases, those, um, those personal biases exist, and how do we look outside a lens of what we've done our whole lives? Um, then yeah. that's just an area for growth, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah. And, and once again, like it's got, it's like, it's really hard, right? Because I think we have some school districts who lean so hard on the social cultural that they really just, they didn't. And one thing that was clear at the Oakland Reach was families really wanted the culturally sustaining uh, content in spaces where their kids felt belonging. So they never, they would never advocate for it if it was at, at the risk of their students not being at grade level. Mm. As much as we, as much as we want it to be culturally sustaining, our families understand, especially low-income families, black and brown families, like they they see education as their child's access to opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. And so we can't diminish their child's access to opportunity because of the social cultural things that we want them. And so that that just makes it hard, right? And so right. does that mean we only do like didactic crunch crunch it out, practice, 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 right? No, like we have no. to be comfortable with finding a, a delicate balance of like I said, like preparing our kids for the world that exists while also helping them um, to create the world they deserve. And it's, yeah. that's, that's what makes schooling hard. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we can talk forever because we haven't seen each other for a long time. And normally I try to keep the podcast down to about 30 minutes, but I know we've been talking for a while. But I, I got one more question. I've really been dying to ask you um, about your work with families and um, communities. And I just want to know how your organization, just a little quick blurb for all the leaders or board members or anybody out there that that could use your your help and expertise yeah. on you know what your organization does to help connect school systems and communities and um, how can that connection uh, really help 
with uh, school systems and and having more students feel like they belong, more families feel like they belong, and more absolutely. Um, teaching. Yeah, appreciate you creating that space. So yeah. why not just a quick introduction? I I am the founder of Rota Leadership Development, and Rota means wheel in Portuguese. And the reason why I named my organization uh, Rota is that. In the 19th century, there was so much poverty in my parents' island in the Azores that a lot of families were giving their infants to the church because they just didn't see a, a way for them to care for them. And so those wheels were called rotas, where you'd put your infant in this wooden wheel and you would spin the wheel and it'd ring the bell so the convent could hear that someone put a child in the church. And so in doing research around my ancestry, I found out that at least three out of my eight great-grandparents were, were cared for by the church, which in many ways, mathematically speaking, is highly unlikely because so many of those infants didn't make it. Um, so I exist because the, the, those rotas were, existed in my parents' islands. And so um, it also connects to my idea of, of the circular, the circle as a symbol for leadership and reflection and um, finding ways to call ourselves to our center. So um, I have do a bunch of work with communities around how to reposition the power dynamic with, between school and families. And a lot of it comes from, I would say the, the biggest thing is rethinking about how we listen to families and creating space to listen to families. And then the other side of it is like, how do we create spaces for families to know that they are, they, they are deserving to be listened to. Right. And so mm -hmm. I've led fellowships for now, uh, like I said, about 50 families. We're trying to launch more fellowships for families to just really understand the history of education uh, rooted in their own assets and values and identities. Let families understand that like their who they are is actually a huge asset to their children, which which a lot of black and brown low income like my parents never showed up to my my educational spaces because they just felt inadequate and like they only went to third grade they didn't feel like they should show up and, mm -hmm. and a lot of families feel that way they're like let me just drop my kid off because i don't know if i really belong in that space but if we let families start from who you are why you are enough and why your example to your children is so important then we can walk them through other learning experiences like the history of schooling the history of, like how bad like unfortunately like, families deserve to know the truth you said yeah only 80% of the kids are not learning math. Like families need to know that and we need to be honest with them. And so that yeah. we can start having a common conversation and building solutions with families. So yeah, I, I think that one of the things that, that districts have me coming in is one to lead professional development with, with principals uh, or like community school coordinators in California around how do we like engage families in, in a really different way where we kind of deconstruct these paternalistic ways of acting with families. And so that's a lot of my work is just supporting systems think through family engagement. And then I do a lot of work around school culture and how to create cultures that really drive learning and achievement. And then the other thing I do is facilitate the kind of strategic planning sessions or what we call like inclusive community, inclusive design processes, where you're bringing families, students and staff and community members to think, what do we want our school system to be? Or what do we want our school to be? And how do we design a vision that we can collectively hold together? So that last thing is is really what I think is the is the meat of it all. That if yeah. school systems don't have that, uh, don't know how to do that, if they're just selling tap water, <laughs> that's right. Not, they're not going to work. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Mike. I appreciate you coming on a podcast and sharing all this stuff. And actually, I just love reconnecting with you. It's been it's been so long, and um, I think uh, what you're doing is wonderful for the communities that you are working with. So I hope that that could be spread through more communities in California and across the, the U.S. Awesome, man. Take yeah. care. Enjoy yourself. Take care of your family. Glad to see yeah. you doing well. Okay. Thank you. We'll see you. Yeah.